I invite you to open in your copy of the scripture to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study. We're finishing up chapter 12 this morning, looking at verses 38 to 44. And the children are staying with us this morning, so I would encourage you parents to have your Bible open and show your your child where we are and help them to, to track along with us as we work our way through this passage. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. I'll read the passage for us. Mark writes, starting in verse 38, and he says, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Father, as we look at your word together, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work through his word in our hearts. So we ask that you would be our teacher now, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 1990s, the Christian singer-songwriter Matt Redman was a volunteer worship leader at his church, and he and his pastor at the same time realized that something was off about their times of praise together as a church family. Though they had a very impressive-sounding band and the -the state-of-the-art sound equipment and amazing mood-setting lighting and all of those things, something just seemed to not be right. And the pastor put his finger on it. He determined that the church family, we may have gotten our focus more on how we sound and the songs that we're singing and the mood that we're trying to create rather than remembering the heart of worship, really focusing on glorifying God in the midst of our praise. And so the pastor made a very radical decision. He decided to get rid of the worship team for a season. And so on Sunday mornings for a season as a church family, when it came time to praise God together, the sound system was turned off and everyone just sang a cappella voices only during worship. Matt Redman said, it ushered us back into the heart of worship. Many of you probably know that worship song that he wrote, Heart of Worship, which was written out of that experience that he had with his church in that season. The lyrics of the song go, When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll give you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, Jesus. 
I think the lyrics of that song get to really the heart of the passage that we're looking at this morning because it really is ushering us into what the heart of worshiping Jesus looks like. Last week, we saw uh, from Jesus' teaching in the temple in the preceding passage that he taught that he is God. And if he is God, then we ought to worship him. And now Mark changes his focus to show us how do we worship Jesus? What does it look like to worship Jesus? And you'll notice in this passage, there's nothing about music, nothing about singing. Mark gets us to see that worship is something deeper than that that Jesus looks at our lifestyle. He looks at our heart. As the song says, he looks much deeper within through the way things appear. He looks at the heart. What does it look like to worship Jesus? Well, this passage really begins, if you look at verse 38, it starts by Jesus teaching us that if we're going to worship him, we should not be like the worship leaders of his day. Take a look at verse 38. Uh, In verse 38, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Uh, The scribes were really sort of the worship leaders of God's people in the Jewish community. They were sort of pastor preachers. They would have led the worship within the synagogues and within the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus says that the public status that they had as sort of men of worship had apparently gone to their heads. Now, they struggled with the three Ps. They wanted popularity. They wanted power, and they wanted prosperity. Just take a look at what he says about them in verse 38. He says, beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to walk around in their $10,000 suit, and they love when they get recognized in the grocery store. Verse 39, they, they love having the best seats in the synagogue, places of honor at feasts. They crave the power that comes from being on the platform, being at the head of the table at every dinner that they were invited to. And in verse 40, even worse, they had made a play of godliness in order to get money. Verse 40, Jesus says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They found out, you know what, if I can, if I can appear to be a very godly person, say the right thing, do the right thing, I can line my pockets with Jewish supporters who might just be pretty impressed with my ministry. All these impressive men that everyone would have looked at as the the spiritual example of the day. Jesus sees right through it all and he says, no, they're playing a game. By appearing to be living lives of worship, they're actually worshiping themselves. I think the point that we can see from these verses is that Jesus sees through, Jesus sees through our self-centered worship. Jesus knows when we're being hypocritical Jesus knows when we're being genuine as we seek to live our lives in worship to him. And I think there are two things that these verses teach us we ought to pray for as a church family. Number one, I think these verses teach us that we need to pray for the leaders of Grace Church to have integrity towards God, that we would be genuine worshipers of God. Uh, So we need to pray for our pastors, we need to pray for our lay elders, our deacons, our ministry staff, and the many in this church congregation who are in leadership capacities in the ministries of our church. You know, when you have a leaky faucet, oftentimes you don't realize that you have a leaky faucet until one day you open up the cabinet beneath the faucet and what's there? A bunch of mold and disgusting mildew 
showing you that it's been leaking for quite a long time. I think it would be so easy for us as leaders here at Grace to have that daily poison drip of pride and self-centeredness just dropping day by day into our hearts without us even realizing it until it's too late, until the mold and mildew has grown all over our hearts. So we need to pray. Pray that we would not, be conf- that we'd not confuse the worship of God with the worship of self, that in our leadership capacity, we wouldn't make decisions based on what others think, but on what God thinks, that we wouldn't have a false uh, sense of, of power, craving for power, that we'd be kept from the love of money, that as we strive to be more holy than we are now, that we would not pretend to be more holy than we truly are, that we need to pray. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor in the 1800s in Scotland. Uh, He died at the age of 29. And in the very short uh, pastoral ministry that he had, he left an amazing impact that continues to this day. He was known for being an inordinately godly young man. I mean, people said talking to him was like talking to Jesus. He was a very holy, devout uh, young man. Um, such an impact on his life that his biography is one of the best Christian, uh, most read Christian biographies to this day. Have any of you ever read his biography? Okay, a handful of you. And uh, some of you may even use his Bible reading plan. If you've heard of the McShane Bible reading plan, uh, that was something that he put together for his congregation that thousands still use to this day. But one of his greatest quotes, Robert Murray McShane, one of his greatest quotes was an answer to a question that he had been asked. Uh, he was asked one day, what, do, what does your church need most from you as their pastor? What do they most need from you as their pastor? Robert Murray McShane's reply was surprising. He said, my people's greatest need is for my own personal holiness. What my church needs most from me is that I would have integrity towards God. I think these verses are showing us that. That's what Paul said we ought to pray for in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 5. He said that the aim of ministry is that, if we could advance, it's not advancing for me. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's why James gave us the warning in James 3, 1, that not many of you should become teachers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you take a look at verse 40, Jesus says that about the scribes. Verse 40, he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. So we ought to pray for our leaders, but I think something else that uh, we should pray for that arises from these verses, pray for your worship to be focused on God's glory, not on being recognized by others. That your worship would be focused on God's glory and not the recognition of others. How many of you know the name Mark Dever? Mark Dever? Eh, not many of you. He's a well-known pastor in uh, Washington, D.C. He serves at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He has a legacy of discipling hundreds of young men into ministry, and he knows about that reputation, and so a lot of young men tend to come to his church thinking that they're going to get opportunities to teach and to be kind of upfront. And he knows that, and so as he is approached by young men, he has a little test that he has adopted for them. A young man will come up to him and and will say, "Um, I'm interested if there's any opportunities for me to teach. And Mark Dever will say something like, 
oh, well, I'll, I'll, keep an, I'll keep an eye open for any opportunities that arise. But hey, in the meantime, it sounds like you have a servant's heart. And we have an immediate need in our church. We have a handful of seniors who need a drive to church on Sunday mornings. Sounds like you'd be, that, that's something that you could do. Would you, would you mind picking them up? And he said, it is surprising how many of those young men say, oh, no, that's not my gift set. Or no, I'm not quite available for that. And Mark Dever says to them, oh, I'm sorry. It, it sounded like you were available for teaching on Sundays, but it sounds like you might be too busy if you can't pick anyone up. Friends, I wonder about the service that you offer to God in worship. Do you find that you run to the opportunities of service that have the most public aspect and that you tend to neglect the more behind the scenes opportunities for service? Do you find that you choose the opportunities that require the least amount of your energy and time but the most public recognition? Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 1, that we are to beware of practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. We should practice our righteousness. We do have to serve God, but we have to be careful about our motive. Are we looking to be recognized, or are we doing it for the audience of one? Jesus sees through our self-centered worship. And that takes us to the next portion of our text for this morning. Where does he go after warning about the, the pretend worship of the scribes? If you take a look at verse 41, verse 41, he sits himself down opposite the Jerusalem temple's treasury, and he just watches people putting money into the offering box. I think there's something kind of comical about that. You know, Jesus just sits there and watches people give their offering. I was picturing this week... Um, you know, Jesus, if he came here to Grace Church at Willow Valley, he might just be totally comfortable sitting out in the lobby in that chair that's right next to the offering box and just kind of watching as people go by. As you plop your money in, maybe he'd go, hmm, interesting, you know. He's just sitting there watching. What is he doing? I think that there is a very clear connection between him calling out the pretend worship of the scribes and him then going and sitting next to the temple treasury. I think Jesus knows something about us. I think he knows that the spending from our wallet is often a good indicator of the state of our worship. The state of our wallet is often a good indicator of the state of our worship. Uh, Kent Hughes has this great quote on commenting on this passage. Kent Hughes said, there is a disease that is particularly virulent in this modern age. It is called cirrhosis of the giver. It is an acute condition that renders the patient's hand immobile when it attempts to move from the wallet to the offering box. The remedy is to remove the afflicted away from the offering box since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternate environments such as golf courses or malls or restaurants. And Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, that should say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think Jesus positioning himself right next to the treasury shows us that he thinks that our spending is his business. 
Uh, we, at, as Americans, I think we, we, you know, we, we tend to be a little shy and reserved about talking about money. We know it's inappropriate to ask how much someone makes or how much they got their house for, how much they bought that car for, but not so with Jesus. Jesus is interested in my bank account. Uh, interest, uh, Jesus doesn't turn his face away when I type in the amount that I'm going to tip the waitress at the next restaurant I eat. Jesus is intrigued by how many times this week I've walked across the street to McDonald's to get nice coffee, which was about five or six times this week. Now, those things aren't necessarily bad expenses, but they are expenses that are made under the eyes of Jesus. Jesus is interested in our spending. I wonder, when was the last time, knowing that, that Jesus is interested in our spending and that where our heart is, there our treasure will be also, when is the last time that you just laid open your budget, looked at your spending, and just prayed, Lord, what does this say about the treasure of my heart? What if you did that this week? If you just laid open your budget, looked at your spending for the month, and just took about two minutes to pray, Lord, what does this say about the treasure of my heart? Is there anything that you would like me to change, Lord? Maybe nothing will change. Maybe even he'll lead you to give less, but maybe he'll lead you to give more. Well, Jesus sits and he watches the people give. Uh, where he's sitting here in the temple was known as the court of women, and this was where the, uh, the, the, the bank offering boxes were. There were 13 of them, and they were known as the trumpets because they were shaped as kind of like inverted trumpets. So they opened up at the top like a plate and then narrowed down to a little funnel so people couldn't steal the money that was inside. And then it came out again in this big kind of pot at the bottom where all the money would collect. And these things were made of heavy brass. So when people gave, you could hear it. So you can imagine Jesus is sitting there. He's, he's watching all of these people give. Verse 41, it says, many rich people put in large sums. So he's sitting there. People are coming by, and he would have heard in the offering boxes just all these loud coins as the rich people gave huge sums of money. And then all of a sudden, there is one woman who's different from all the rest. She doesn't look like the rich people who have the fancy clothes. In fact, her clothes are a little more worn, a little more tattered. She's not coming with the big grandiose offering. She comes maybe even with her head down a little bit, very unassuming. And Jesus hears her as she approaches the offering plate and all he hears is and then she just humbly walks away. Now, of all the offerings given that day, that is the offering that gets Jesus' attention and gets his excitement going. Take a look at verse 43. He's so excited about this woman's offering that he wants to get his disciples together because he thinks they need to see this woman. So in verse 43, he calls his disciples to him, and he says to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. How does that math work? So everyone was giving coin upon coin upon coin, these massive offerings. She just put two little coins in. Jesus is showing us that he's a different kind of accountant than the accountants of this earth. 
The accountants of this earth, they're interested in the numbers, they're interested in the growth, they're interested in the, in the, in the things getting big. Jesus, in verse 44, tells us what kind of accounting he does as the accountant of heaven. In verse 44, he says, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And this poor widow probably lived day to day on the money that she made on any given day. Whatever money that she had to live on that day, she chose out of the love of her heart to the Lord to give it all. All the others that day, they had given some, and they had given kind of half-heartedly, kind of mechanically. Jesus sees this woman's heart and the huge sacrifice of love that she had made, and he honors it. I think what we see is Jesus honors worship done from a heart of love to God. He looks much deeper within through the way things appear, he looks at the heart. Jesus notices small sacrifices made with a big heart. I think that is an encouragement to some of us here um, this morning who maybe are a young adult and you don't have as much money in this season of life. Or maybe you're in a season where you're financially burdened. You wish that you could give more, but you just can't. Or maybe it's in terms of your energy and, and the, the use of your time, the, the things that you would love to serve God in doing and giving yourself to. But in this season of life, your energy and your health is just not what it used to be. Or maybe you're a young parent and all your energy is just funneled into those crazy little kids that you've got at your house and you're not able to get involved in worshiping God by serving him in, in all the ways that you wish you could. But what these verses are showing us with this widow is that Jesus cares not about the quantity of the gift given. He's interested in the quality of the heart that is giving. He looks at our heart. We ought not to underestimate what Jesus can do with the smallest service done with a genuine heart. I heard a story recently of a missionary who was raising, trying to raise support to get out to the field where he wanted to go. And he was very discouraged because there was just no one. In the churches that he'd go to and present, there was no one who was supporting him. Came to the point where he was a 35-year-old living in his parents' basement, the classic depressing story. And finally, as he was going to one church on a Sunday, he told himself as he was driving there, this is the last one. So if I leave this church and I don't have any supporters by the end of it, I'm done. I'm thrown in the towel. I'm not going to do this anymore. So he got to the church and they forgot that he was coming. So that's just encouraging right off the bat. So they pivoted and allowed him to make his presentation. And then as he was making his presentation, there was a little boy in the congregation who was causing a ruckus and, and being very distracting and had to be ushered out of the sanctuary, and he just felt like it did not go well. So he was talking afterwards during the fellowship time, and there was one person, one person who he thought might want to support him in the ministry, so he's talking. And as he's talking to this individual, he felt a tug on his sleeve, 
And he looked down, it was the little boy who had caused a ruckus during his presentation. And he just put something in his hand and he was very focused on the conversation he was having with this potential supporter. So he just quick said thank you to the boy and turned his attention again. Well, as the story goes, the boy's mother came up to the man afterwards and said, hey, I want to apologize for my son's disruption during your presentation. He has a medical condition that he's had ever since he was a baby. And when he gets really excited, he has seizures. And he had a seizure during your presentation, and we had to usher him out. He's okay. But I also want to let you know, we've started giving quarters to him so that he can learn how to give his money to the Lord on Sunday mornings. And recently, for about two months, when we give him the quarter, he started asking, can I keep the quarter for myself? And we have told him, son, that quarter is yours to do with what you think is right. If you want to keep the quarter for yourself, that is what you'll do, or you can give it to the Lord. She says, for the past two months, he's kept the quarter for himself. But as you were talking and sharing your presentation, he got so excited about your ministry, so excited for the opportunity to serve you, that he had a seizure. And he just wanted to give you his quarters so that you could go where Jesus is calling you to go. And the missionary said, that's what kept him going. And he still has that bag of quarters to this day. It's the greatest gift he's ever been given by any of his supporters. Friends, do not underestimate what Jesus can do with a small sacrifice made with a big heart how it could be used to transform someone's life, to glorify God beyond anything that you can imagine. Jesus is pleased with worship that comes from the heart, not about how much you give, but about the motives behind why you give, why you serve. Is it done with a heart of worship? Jesus in John 4 taught us that that is the kind of worship that God is seeking. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In Romans 12, that famous passage, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, in light of everything that Jesus has done for us in the gospel to save us and to call us to himself, we, as our act of worship, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything that you have given over to him out of gratitude and appreciation, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Jesus honors worship that comes from a heart of genuine love to God. I think that this text points us ultimately to what Jesus would end up doing for us. He would be the shepherd not like the scribes who were selfish and had self, selfishness at the motivation of all that they were doing. He would be a good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep in humility and genuine servitude. He would be like the poor widow who, though he was rich, left all of the abundance of his riches in heaven and made himself poor by coming and living a humble life and giving us all that he had to give his entire life on the cross 
so that all who trust in him for the forgiveness of sins could belong to him. How could we not in turn, out of a heart of gratitude, worship him for all he's done? It is his sacrifice, his example of worship, his example of service that we remember as we go to the bread and cup in just a moment. Remembering that Jesus is the one who came and gave his all for us so that we might have communion with God through faith in him.